Hey, before we get started, did you know that you can get continuing education for this podcast? Just head over to academy.flightcrit.com to find out more information. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to this episode of the Flight Crit Podcast, your place for pre-hospital emergency and critical care transport education. In this episode of the podcast, we talk with Dr. Jeremy Kaswer, better known as TAC Trauma MD, about his approach to the initial stabilization of the polytrauma patient. From assessment to chest tubes, shock index to reboa, Dr. Kaswer shares his experience as an ED physician, Army flight surgeon, and critical care fellow at Shock Trauma with our community. And be sure to stick around to the end when Dr. Kaswer drops a bomb on us about obstructive physiology in the trauma patient and why he believes more pre-hospital providers should be using point-of-care ultrasound in the field. And with that, I want to invite you to kick back, relax, and enjoy this episode on the initial stabilization of the polytrauma patient with Dr. Jeremy Kaswer. Yeah, sure. So I'm Jeremy Kaswer. I originally from the Northeast and went to school there um, before then going on to emergency medicine on Albany and then right now currently a trauma critical care fellow at Shock Trauma. And in between this, I also commissioned with the Army and currently a flight surgeon with them. Um, I also have a number of years in experience doing pre-hospital medicine with uh, EMS and also uh, as a firefighter as well. But I did see, yeah, that you do have that background in EMS, which I think is so cool. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also very valuable, you know, taking that for now. As a physician, it's still highly applicable to everything that I do and also still being able to now be know, helping out with training and hopefully now someday being a medical director. Very cool. Now, yeah. I, I saw that you're also getting ready to start a, a surgical fellowship, right? Yeah. UPenn? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, it's crazy. I've got about a week uh, left here with my current fellowship right now. I'm doing trauma critical care and I'm going to be starting emergency medicine surgical critical care fellowship at Penn and going to be doing that for a couple of years moving forward. Nice. Wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. So <laughs> the training never ends. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. and it, not for any of us, you know, I mean, I, I feel like for me, you know, when, when we stop learning, it's time to get out of the game. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, awesome. I mean, that's, that's, that's a really awesome background. And again, I, I'm super excited to have you here. So um, we did have some questions kind of lined up, but I, hopefully this conversation just kind of flows. You know, I feel like you've got a, a lot to contribute to our community, <clears throat> excuse me, in um, like in critical care transport and uh, pre-hospital care. Um, so, you know, I'm just going to have to ask a couple of questions and just kind of see where the conversation goes. We do have some things that we, we know that you can kind of school us on. And so we're super excited about that. Um, so I, I guess kind of the first place I wanted to start off is talk about like, mm -hmm. your role. What is your role in the army as a flight surgeon? Um, and then how does that impact your role as a doc in the civilian sector? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think the big thing, and especially for people who aren't military, you know, looking at what a flight surgeon will do, you know, just as a nomenclature uh, to throw it out there, we are not always surgeons. Um, it is leftover vocabulary from actually the 1700s. So any physician uh, will just be having that designation as a flight surgeon. But I think the really big focus that a lot of people don't always know is that we are primarily going to be focused, not necessarily as always rendering care in flight, which some flight surgeons do but it's really gonna be about uh, medical readiness and preparedness. So from our standpoint, a huge factor that we will uh, you know, play for any unit that we're attached with, um, whether it's you know, for a guard unit or you know, a combat aviation grade, is to ensure that the aviators are healthy and that they are able to, you know, to carry out their mission effectively. And that means that 
they're able to show up to work and making sure that they can safely fly. But also ensuring too that from a medical standpoint, if there's anyone as far as uh, providers, whether um, en route care, care nurses, um, flight medics, that they also are trained up and have the proper skills and competencies in order to also do their jobs properly. So it can be a little bit sometimes admin heavy, but definitely on the whole training and preparedness aspect, um, ensuring that when we have that mission to you know, go out, you know, fly missions and also render care, those folks are able to get the job done. So it's a lot of stuff that's done behind the scenes and not necessarily what you would think of this always like, you know, cool, you know, like in the back of you know, some UH-60 rendering care. Um, there are flight docs who absolutely can do that and you, you know, can go through the lanes and get checked off on that. Um, but that's not always our primary role. Okay. Is that something that you've had the opportunity to do? Uh, not yet. I've been, uh, unfortunately with my career so far, I've been you know, fairly busy with you know, training and education. Um, hopefully once I'm then done with my fellowship, being able to then branch out a little bit more and spend a bit more time um, on that side of things and also uh, switching around units. So I'm hoping to get there at uh, some point. Um, but right now, just mostly, mostly focusing on my civilian training to then be you know, a better military physician and asset to my unit. Gotcha. That's super cool. No, I'm glad you actually kind of clarified that because, you know, um, when I think flight surgeon, I, I don't know, for some reason, my brain just goes to flight physician in the civilian sector, sector mm-hmm. just, which just ends up doing like flight physicals for our pilots, which clearly that's not the case. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And I know the um, other question you said to, you know, how does that translate then into the civilian side um, of my practice? It's interesting because I think it gives uh, a very good perspective on all the patients that we have coming in and also the training that we can then provide to all those you know, critical care nurses and medics who will then be transporting patients, whether it's ground or in the air. Um, it's definitely something that we have a close relationship with a lot of the assets, especially down here in Maryland. We have an exceptional uh, helicopter system run by the Maryland State Police. Right. Um, being able to understand what they go through, um, the tools and training that they have allows us to not only you know, better understand what they're going through and train, uh, with them, but also be prepared when we're then able to render care for patients. Um, so I think that's a huge asset and being able to understand that. We unfortunately, you know, in the United States don't have a huge uh, physician presence um, with helicopter EMS systems that, you know, other places like Germany or England does. Um, maybe one day, I know there's a few systems that do do it well, but I think if we can expand that in a little bit more of a role and have that, you know, integration, that there's definitely some areas in this country and uh, concepts I think could be beneficial for patients, but hopefully there's more to come in the next few years on that. Yeah. I mean, you definitely kind of answered a question that we already had that we were kind of saving for later on, which was that role, the physician in the civilian transport world, because like you said, that just doesn't occur like it does here, like it does in lots of uh, other uh, parts of the world. Um, Mm. So, you know, I know that there are a few places uh, like Wisconsin, I think uh, flies, uh, physician, uh, medic, or physician nurse, and you're not exactly sure what their profile is. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting to kind of see um, how that works. And I'm curious, you know, I think you kind of already answered that question is what, what do you think that that, that, that um, pathway is or, or the trajectory of critical care transport medicine um, mm. with the application of physicians out in the field? Um, how you know, do you think that that's going to kind of evolve here in the States? 
Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And, you know, just to throw it back right at you guys, you know, Sean Hunter, you guys, as far as your training, what you're able to do pre-hospital, you know, especially as Flightmax being, you know, some of the best that we work with as far as pre-hospital providers, you guys are able to do a whole slew of skills and interventions that, you know, a lot of times we don't bring a whole lot more to the table. So as far as, you know, filling that role, the medics that we have that will transport as patients, they're already doing, you know, life-saving and exceptional interventions that, no, we can also do, but you guys are already able to do within your repertoire of skills. Now, I think though there is some niche though that we do have that we can bring to the table as far as offering more advanced therapies or interventions. And you know, some things that would be interesting to look at as far as you know, pre-hospital verboa, um, doing ECMO as far as interfacility transport, um, or if there's something like you no know, higher, you know, surgical skills or techniques that you would then be bringing to a scene for a critical patient if you do have a surgeon available. Um, to then be able to, you know, get either surgical hemostasis or some type of intervention before you then can then get them to higher care. So I think there is, you know, possibly a role for that, but you have to have a very well-developed system and integration um, before you would be able to do that. I think it can be something that we do have on the horizon, but for the majority of what we see in the States and also our transport times, a lot of times, you know, a flight medic is able to take care of, you know, 95% of what we would see. Gotcha. No, I, I agree. It's it's been pretty amazing to see, even in my career, um, the evolution of the paramedic uh, and mm-hmm. the skills that have come to be part of our uh, our our skill set. Um, not just in critical care transport, but in the civil, you know, in the non critical care world, and seeing what you know many of the protocols that are. Our 911 providers operate with uh, is is pretty remarkable compared to where it was 20 years ago when I started. I, I'm curious though, you you kind of did touch on this concept that there are some things that a physician can bring to the field. You mentioned Reboa. Um, what else do you think? I mean, because obviously there are programs that are are flying with physicians, and in, in the military, you know, you, there are times when the physician is getting to go out into the field. Um, what what kind of concepts, what do you think that the physician can bring out to the field that will improve our patient care? So I think for selected types of patients that we are able to have, you know, an advanced notification of, or even for uh, interfacility critical care transport, so, you know, some exceptional pathologies where we can say, hey, you know, there is uh, intervention or therapy that could be useful for a patient that we can then bring out to them. And I think those things would be more of the uh, advanced um, types of uh, therapies, interventions that I was talking about, stuff that, you know, we could, you know, possibly train medics up on, but a lot of things like ECMO, that will really be something that will be a physician level skill. Um, I also say Reboa as well. I know in the military, we are training, you know, non-physicians that are able to get trained up on that therapy, but for nice. the most part, especially on the civilian side, it's, you know, usually a, you know, physician or a trauma surgeon that's going to be, you know, placing a Reboa. And, you know, for those types of patients, if you're able to get a physician there and present, um, it would be useful. There could be, you know, some surgical interventions, albeit they are, you know, fairly limited. It's not like anyone will really want to be doing, you know, pre-hospital surgery. Um, but, you know, something, if it's going to be like, you know, a traumatic uh, amputation that you need to complete in the field, you know, having uh, some type of skilled physician or surgeon going out in there could be useful. Um, but, you know, as far as the types of patients that would really benefit from it, it truly is, there aren't too many that I would see commonly. Um, so it would really have to also be, you know, in tandem with a good training and triage system that we need to get set up before we'd have that implemented. Um, I know there are some, you know, systems that do that already, you know, having some type of physician on call. And again, even with those currently in place, 
the callouts for a physician are right now very, very few and far in between. Right. Well, expand on that idea because you did mention that that the military is doing some training of non-physician level providers to place Reboa. Can you expand on that a little? Yeah. So there is some uh, data and they actually do have some retrospective uh, data on this where they do have non-physicians, mostly in the SOCOM community, where they have placed uh, pre-hospital of Reboa, you know, and before a patient was able to get to a role two for, you know, definitive surgical hemostasis for some type of traumatic injury that they had, and they were suffering from some type of exsanguination. And it is, you know, a skill that is procedural. And while, you know, physicians will have all these years of training and education, it really just comes down to being able to have some clinical um, gestalt as to identifying the proper patients that would benefit from Reboa. And then it's just like any other skill that, you know, we can teach, you know, medics as well. Um, and in the SOCOM community as well, like they also have an advanced repertoire of skills, being able to place uh, chest tubes, um, being confident with ultrasound, things like that. So those procedural skills, you know, can definitely train up. Um, I think Verboa really isn't in that prime time just yet. But I think, you know, in the future, we first have to probably show some more um, mortality benefit for it and have some widespread use before we then would really have it primed for, um, you know, it's big time debut. I just don't think we're there exactly yet, but there's definitely some uh, studies in the works that I'm hoping in the near future, we're able to kind of swing the pendulum on where Robo stands right now in our healthcare system. Nice. No, that's super cool to, to hear that, um, that that is at least being trained and pushed out to those frontline providers in, in the military. As we know, everything trauma related always comes from the military down to the civilian <laughs> sector 20 years later. You know, Hunter, did you have anything that you wanted to ask with regards to that? No, that, that's uh, really awesome. Uh, we were kind of going to ask you those questions as well. Um, mm. Kind of what the position can bring and kind of more skill sets and stuff like that. And uh, Reboa was one. And uh, we were going to ask, do you ever feel that? I mean, again, I think this is a very small patient population, but doing pre-hospital thoracotomies for certain degree of chest trauma and stuff like that? Mm. Hmm. So I'm personally, you know, it's also different as an ER physician and playing, you know, around with my trauma surgeon colleagues. You know, we have a different perspective as far as, you know, what my role is and what I'll do in a trauma setting. I'm not going to be the definitive end-all be-all to the care. No, the omnipotent folks are going to be the trauma surgeons where they can get, you know, in and have definitive surgical hemostasis and be able to restore, you know, the uh, physiology that was disrupted by whatever traumatic injury there was. So my role mo more so is, you know, for resuscitation, being able to get them to that trauma surgeon so then they can do their role. You know, as far as then thoracotomies are concerned, you know, we are still trained in them, you know, as ER physicians. And the big thing with them is that you need to have a surgeon that is competent and ready to go with an OR that's also ready to go within minutes. And that I think is going to be the big factor as to, you know, shying away and not doing a pre-hospital thoracotomy. Um, I think you would get yourself into a whole slow trouble very, very quickly, where even if you are able to resuscitate the patient and maybe you get some temporary hemostasis, you have a patient who is literally on the brink of, you know, dying right in front of you for most of the pathology you would be encounter. And you're going to still be a far way away from an OR. Um, you know, with the current ATLS guidelines, it also would you know, be inconsistent with that. Um, 
I just would not see anyone doing a pre-hospital thoracotomy. Now, this is also why you know we're trying to implement Reboa, which you could say for some of the things, if it's exsanguination instead of cross-clamping the aorta, well, why don't you just do it from inside the aorta with a balloon? Um, so those interventions, you know, they definitely have their place pre-hospital thoracotomy. I would not see that being done uh, pre-hospital at all. Okay. <laughs> well, you bring up a good point, right? You know, the, as as an ER physician, as a trauma, you know, um, trauma, trauma specialist, you know, or flight surgeon, you know, your role is that stabilization and then get them to definitive care, which most mm-hmm. of the time in trauma is a surgical OR. So I'd like to actually pick your brain a little bit about how you prioritize these patients. What What is your uh, approach to assessment of this multi-system trauma patient? Mm-hmm. And then what are those things that you in your mind are a, a stay in play kind of priority, priority intervention before taking that patient, put them in your aircraft or, you know, or, or moving them on out of your ER to the surgical suite. Mm-hmm. So I think there's really two things that I think about every time that I have a trauma patient that, you know, I will be caring for, whether it's pre-hospital or in the trauma bay, I always view trauma. It's very algorithmic. And the way that we develop all these algorithms that we have for treating them, whether it's, you look at, ACLs with ABCD or in the military, we'll teach March, where we're kind of more so focused on massive exsanguination and trying to prevent that hemorrhage uh, first. It's all trying to prevent life-threatening threatening, uh, pathophysiology from killing a patient in the most threatening uh, descending order. Now, I'll then like, if I have a patient that, you know, looks to have stable vital signs and it doesn't look like they're exsanguinating anywhere, they don't have signs of any type of shock. I'm going to feel a lot uh, better than someone who's going to have you know, barely any vital signs, and I'm going to need to work expeditiously to try and correct their physiology before they code on me. And I almost view it as reverse engineering. It kind of sounds a little bit odd just to then break it down to that level, but what we really have is you know, a body that has multiple complex physiological uh, processes, and there's some disruption with those big ones that you know, we think about. You know, cardiopulmonary dynamics and being able to have end organ perfusion with blood going around the body. There's clearly a disruption somewhere and you have to fix it and you have to do it in the most uh, safest, fastest manner possible. So when I then think about trauma patients and all in that conglomerate, I literally will just see these patients when they come in and then try and figure out where on this almost uh, scale as far as how sick they are and then how many or what types of interventions to do to then make sure that they don't deteriorate further. I think the big thing too is also being able to recognize when a patient is sick before that they're actually going to start to circle the drain and become in that decompensated um, shock phase. Um, uh, a great quote that we throw around here, you know, to quote Dr. Cowley, where he would describe shock as the momentary pause yeah. um, before death. And being able to recognize these patients who are still compensating that intervening at that point is going to be incredibly key before they then get to that point of decompensation where you're already going to be behind the eight ball and any interventions that you could do while correct, you're not going to get a lot of bang for your buck. Um, And I think that is very key that I was learning as a new physician um, that I fortunately had sometimes we were not able to identify and we lost patients. I mean, it sticks with you and you don't forget that then you see the next trauma patient. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, we, I just had this conversation today with one of my, uh, my co, um, uh, you know, my, my coworkers is that you don't remember those patients so much that you, the ones that you saved, you remember the ones that you lost because mm-hmm. we, we think about it and we repro- we, we replay those calls over and over in our head going, 
oh yeah, I should have picked up on that, or I should have picked on, uh, I should have done that differently. And that's what makes us better. That's what allows us to move forward. Um, no, I, I think that that's, that's really cool. Hunter, anything that you wanted to add? Yeah. Kind of? Uh, yeah, question. So the the March algorithm, I, I feel like, is uh, definitely coming to the civilian world, yeah. world mm-hmm. more and more. Is that something you're using? I, I mean, you would hope that you know major hemorrhage and stuff has been tourniqueted, taken care of outside of internal trauma. But are you using that March algorithm? Like right when they come through the door, are you using that or? So personally, I am not. And the reason is that, you know, with us in the current civilian trauma model, we will still use ATLS. You know, that's what all of us are trained on. That's what all uh, the nurses we also work with know. And it's something that I think by the time that we they get to us in the trauma bay, there's already been intervention from you guys out in the field that has been able to then hopefully manage that massive hemorrhage. And whether that's, you know, some type of... Uh, Junctional tourniquet, you have uh, a tourniquet or you're able to get some type of hemostatic gauze on. And likely if you're able to manage it successfully, that's also a patient that's able to get to us alive in the trauma bay. So at that point, it's nearly similar to the ATLS uh, algorithm. But I think that development in March was specifically made because in the specific setting of pre-hospital trauma, especially on the battlefield, the most common cause of patients who were uh, dying, this is a retrospective data from Vietnam, 90% 90% of it was uh, hemorrhage and exsanguinating before they got to a role one or role two facility. And I think, you know, shifting up that focus, um, we've definitely seen leaps and bounds of improvement in battlefield survivability because of that. Okay. You mentioned real quickly hemostatic gauze. You know, there's so much emphasis on, on tourniquets. Um, and I, and I know, for, at least from my personal experience, uh, I have not had a lot of experience with junction tourniquets. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious, do you see a benefit to the hemostatic gauze or, um, you know, like, I mean, cause I've had, I've heard people, I've heard docs say, oh gosh, you know, I don't like it. You know, it causes more tissue damage, um, than it does good. You know, it's just kind of no different than just direct pressure with multiple, you know, big bulky dressings. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? So I think it definitely has a place, especially if you're able to transition from a tourniquet to hemostatic gauze, especially if you have prolonged transport times. You know, the uh, Navy research, they did some good studies on that where they were able to achieve over 97% hemostasis on swine models by using uh, CLX and combat gauze. Now, these can be very effective if done properly. And if you're able to properly sweep and then pack the wound and hold pressure, you can stop major arterial bleeding. Um, hmm. The reason why they likely aren't the first line or anything that will reach to in the pre-hospital setting is, as you guys know, if you get a very ill trauma patient, there's a lot of moving parts. And the last thing you want to do is be holding pressure for five minutes on a wound when you can be tending to so many things like trying to do other interventions. They might need an airway. You're trying to establish IV access and you know get the patient moving. So the tourniquet, you know, within seconds, you're able to stop the hemorrhage and then move on from that. But if you do have the time, and there isn't a huge exsanguination or even a, a venous bleed, the hemostatic agents can be an excellent uh, adjunct that you can use instead of just going for a tourniquet. And a lot of times, um, the patients that we see come in, they actually don't need a tourniquet for the type of bleeding that they have. So being able to then you know, prevent uh, limb ischemia at time uh, for however long they have to tourniquet up and just use hemostatic gauze is, I think, a win. As far as you know, tissue damage, all the newer hemostatic agents, I know the old ones were 
incredibly exothermic and they could cause like local burn and tissue injury. That's not the case anymore. It just makes it a little bit less fun for the trauma surgeon when they need to then debride uh, that wound later on. Um, but it's better than them bleeding out. Sure. I used this term once upon a time called functional application of the tourniquet, which um, the thought process behind it was that uh, I had this trauma patient, venous bleeding, but uh, still pinned in the vehicle. They were being extricated. I couldn't get into the vehicle because they were doing, you know, they actively doing extrication and the vehicle was, was too messed up. But rather than just let this person sit there losing blood, even though it was venous blood, it's still blood, do they applicate, you know, through the tourniquet on and, and then they were able to continue with the extrication and the patient wasn't losing any more blood. Was it a massive you know, arterial hemorrhage? No, but mm-hmm. it's still blood and the patient was still losing it. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to do damage. You know, I'm not going to do vascular damage or nerve damage. I'm not putting it on so tight because, you know, that it, that it, you know, uh, that it's going to do that damage. I'm just simply trying to control that venous bleeding and, um, yeah, you know, get into the ER, take the tourniquet off, put, uh, you know, direct pressure on that, that wound. Cause now, um, you know, you, you have the ability to access the patient to do that. So mm-hmm. anyway, it was just kind of a, a little addition. Do you use the shock index when you're uh, assessing your patients? No, it's funny. We actually have um, some software that will track uh, shock index on our patients automatically mm-hmm. um, at shock trauma. It's a very useful and uh, interesting tool to see if patients, more so on the inpatient side, how they're progressing or if there's any concern with their uh, you know, hemodynamic instability. More so, I'll just like be looking and calculating that in my head um, as I'm just assessing a patient, but I really don't uh, calculate the numbers per se. And I'm sure you guys can you know, speak to this as well. You'll get a general gestalt of your patients and how sick they truly are looking just by quickly looking at their heart rate and their systolic and see once they start to then cross over each other, you know that you're not in a good spot right now. Um, but I also don't take that with Bible as well. And I know this, this is a term thrown out. I know treat patients and not numbers. Sometimes you can have patients that, especially if they have blunt trauma um, or penetrating spinal cord trauma, they can be in some type of uh, neurogenic shock all that goes out the window. Um, so I think it's definitely a tool that you can keep in the back of your mind and be calculating, but I don't hold those numbers to Bible. Um, a, because there can be other confounding factors and sometimes patients can compensate super well or they're not able to compensate well. And while they may not have severe uh, like hypotension or tachycardia, they could be on the ropes already at that point. So just take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, no, I, I, I kind of agree with you. I use that look at their heart rate, look at their systolic, you know, if they're flip-flop, you know, if their heart rate's a bit greater than their systolic, we had a problem. Uh, or my favorite are the elderly patients that are beta-blocked. And it's like, well, they're really not tachycardic, but it looks like they're losing all blood. I don't know what type of shock they're in. And then you really have to look at other metrics to see like, hey, you know, what's their volume size? How much blood did they lose? How much do we need to resuscitate this patient? So it's, that's medicine though. It's never straightforward. That's right. Yeah. We, we've learned to dance in the gray zone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You mentioned, um, you mentioned blunt, blunt chest trauma, right? And so we wanted to dive in a little bit about your management of that, that, that blunt chest trauma, particularly the pneumo or the hemothorax, right? Mm. So, um, you know, what's your approach, right? Because there's, I mean, you can go needle, you can go finger, you can go chest tube, you can do all of the above. Yeah. So you've got that, that unstable patient with multi-trauma or whatever it may be, but they get that blunt mm-hmm. chest trauma. What's your approach? You know, how do you prioritize which intervention you're going to use? So if you're looking at a blunt chest trauma, or you can even say for penetrating trauma, if you're concerned about a pneumonia or hemothorax, for my skill set and what we would do in the trauma base, um, 
it's always going to be for me, finger thoracostomy. And the reason being for us is that if you're already going to be doing a needle decompression, that's going to have to be followed up right then and there at some point with the chest tube. Right. Now, in doing the finger thoracostomy, for us, I can reliably ensure that I'm absolutely in the pillow space. And once you do it a few times and you know, training my residents how to do this in an expeditious manner as well, you can get into a chest cavity within 10 seconds. Um, you know, that's just as fast as you would be if you're going to get out you know, your decompression needle and then also stick it into their chest as well. Um, there's also a lot of data as well on needle decompression where it unfortunately isn't always successful. Um, there's a lot of retrospective data on, you know, success rates only being, you know, sometimes 40 or just 70%. Um, I know there's also a small case series for like retrospective uh, combat casualties where all of them had needle decompressions. Of the 23, only six actually made it into the chest. And I should note that if you guys sometimes only have, you know, as paramedics needle decompressions, the only ones that made it into the chest were the anterior axillary um, needle decompression. So if it's something where you only have the needles, you know, it's absolutely a viable and can be a life-saving intervention. Um, I would only go for the anterior axillary lines for those since you have way less tissue on average to get to the chest cavity. But for us, or if it's within your skill set, um, finger thoracostomy can be just as fast. It's more definitive. And then you follow up with a chest tube right in the same spot. So it's just overall easier and makes more sense, um, especially for us as physicians. Perfect. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's great. You know, I, I, I would agree that that's kind of been my experience um, too, with needle decompressions, you know, usually if they're mm-hmm. actually, they're usually, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not in the chest or, you know, they're too, anti- or too medial. Um, and they worry me that you're, especially on the left side, you're hitting great vessels. So yeah, totally agree with that. What, what, um, so are you almost always following those finger thoracotomies up with, uh, with a chest tube? Yeah. So the only time that I wouldn't be following up immediately with a chest tube is if it's something going to be where a patient is coding. Um, and there's other things that need to be done at that point. Um, as far as blunt trauma goes, no one should be pronounced until you have bilateral finger thoracostomies. Um, no, just keeping in mind that they could have obstructive shock and attention pneumothorax that causes them to code. Um, but most of the time, right after that, we are then following up with a chest tube because they will then need to have that and try and re-expand their lung right after that. Um, I was going to say, so you won't call it until they have a finger. You don't need the chest tubes as well. You'll just do double fingers on each side. And then if they're still in full traumatic arrest, you can call it after that. Yeah. So really at that point, as far as uh, types of blunt traumatic arrest, the ones that you could say like, hey, it could be reversible. And something that we could do is if they had attention pneumo um, and also quickly taking a look at their heart to see if they maybe have uh, tamponade physiology. But beyond that, if they have blunt trauma and they're already arresting, you either have them that hemorrhage an exceptional amount of blood and there's going to be no way that you'll get them back at that point, or they had some devastating, you know, internal injury, like, you know, disruption of their aorta from, you know, a rapid deceleration. And there's unfortunately nothing you can do about that patient. Um, The one thing I'll also say for needle uh, decompressions that, and this is what I've seen uh, personally as well, there's a very, very unique, special triangle, the safety triangle that we'll have that we should be doing these in. And a lot of times I see folks think that they aren't, um, they think that, oh, like this is way too high to be the fourth or fifth intercostal space for the anterior axillary line. So a lot of times people go lower. And I always tell my residents, you always think that you're lower, but you're not. And when I say like, you know, look at this rib space, what rib space do you think this is? They'll say, oh, fourth or fifth, and it ends up being like the seventh. So it may look higher, but if you can then count down, you know, 
where the clavicle goes and crosses the first rib and then down for that. It's a lot higher than you think it is. Um, and I've unfortunately seen some that like needle decompression have gone into the liver. Um, or you know, they do chest tubes that are too low on that side. They also can go into the liver, unfortunately. Um, or if you're on the left side, sometimes into the spleen. Um, just word of caution, just make sure you really understand your anatomy and where you're doing the needle decompression. Yeah. No, that's great. Do you have any, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, we, we all know, you know, well, we should know, you know, that's that third or fourth intercostal space. You know, you know some people will talk about, you know, cram the your hand up into the armpit or, you know, look for, uh, you know, the lateral edge of the pectoralis muscle to find that, that safety triangle. Do you have any um, pearls that we can share on how you like to find that proper anatomical location for the chest tube placement? So usually the one that is fairly reliable for patients who have normal habitus would be just going down from that ipsilateral nipple and then just following the intercostal space from right from there. Usually you're always going to be at the fourth or fifth space. You can also just go one space up from that. Um, every time I've done a chest tube there, I've never had an issue of you know being able to not place it. Um, no, knock on wood, I've never had any chest tubes that have gone inadvertently into spots I did not want them to or misplaced that I was able to do. Um, and that's always how I saw it. And I've also been able to, you know, luckily follow up on all these patients because they all get CAT scans. And we can exactly see like, hey, this is where the new decompression went at the next place. Or, hey, this is where my chest tube's flying right now. Gotcha. Nice. Perfect. That's awesome. So unless they're trauma, trauma arrest, finger thoracotomy, and then follow it up with a chest tube. Otherwise, finger thoracotomy and see if they improve and then um, go from there. Mm -hmm. Nice. Cool. That's awesome. Um, we want to talk a little bit about your use of ultrasound um, mm. and the application to pre-hospital use, because we are starting to see uh, more pre-hospital providers, EMS flight programs using ultrasound. So what do you see? Obviously, you know, in the ER, that's one of the first things, especially with these trauma patients that, you know, the docs always pull out, start looking for um, you know, blood in the, in the chest, blood in the abdomen. Um, but what do you see as being the application for ultrasound in the pre-hospital setting or in the transport setting? And how do you think that that should actually change our care or, or not change our care? You know, if, if we're using the ultrasound and we're finding blood in the, in the belly, does that really change our care in the transport environment before we get them to that surgical uh, or definitive, you know, hospital? So yeah, I think ultrasound is probably one of the most exciting things as far as looking at pre-hospital uh, medicine and care that, you know, on the medic level, we're able to hopefully be expanding our scope and being able to offer more for these patients before they reach the trauma base. You know, it's a skill that is very teachable. And if you practice on it, you know, it's something that can be highly useful in the skilled hands of, you know, a pre-hospital provider. You know, as far as stuff that we can do before a patient reaches us in the trauma bay, there's a lot of things I think that can be useful to either just alert us on or even do interventions um, for that the patient is able to then get to us in the trauma, which will then be very useful since you're then changing care even before the patient gets to us. Um, I think you know, vascular access uh, would be a huge thing. And I've even taken you know, ultrasound when I've been doing you know, pre-hospital shenanigans as a physician um, because I'm then able to use that if I want to do vascular access if they're having uh, you know, difficulty with that. You know, as far as other things aside from vascular access, you know, doing a quick uh, fast or other exams at looking at the heart or lungs for uh, lung sliding. You know, these are skills that can be taught to the medics, you know, in classes, and it can then give you some very key information as you 
um, are then trying to work up and manage that patient. If you have a positive fast for a patient who's coming in, it can be useful information for us. Um, not necessarily something that you guys can really do much with in the field, but if you get a patient that you see, hey, they have tamponade physiology, or you're in the back of a bird and you cannot hear anything, you can't auscultate their lungs reliably, but you put a probe on their chest and you see that they have no lung sliding, they have terrible vitals, it looks like they're going into some type of shock and their sats are going down, and you might see the trachea maybe deviating you know, to the contralateral side. It's like, hey, that's a great indication that they probably have attention to physiology. And the ultrasound is able to give you that nice confirmation to say, you know what, this does, definitely does look like a pneumothorax. Um, or seeing if they have possibly cardiac tamponade as well. Um, and being able to then try and avoid dropping their preload with certain interventions that you're doing um, before they reach it. So I think for those things, it can not only just give us more information before they hit the trauma bay, but it changes management before they get to us, whether they have more things that you can do um, or then change how you manage a patient. So I really am excited to see where that goes, not for the, just for the civilian side, but also for the military as well um, with flight medics in the Army. I think that can also be a highly useful skill for en route prayer. Gotcha. Is the, is the Army, are Army medics using uh, POCUS in the field right now? So the, not to my knowledge for the ones that I am familiar with, um, I know there are some things in the pipeline um, that I'm hopefully going to try and help out with as far as developing and utilizing ultrasound um, for end room critical care. Um, I think it definitely does have a place in uh, transport for patients that, you know, for a medevac type of scenario um, before patients would get to a role too. So I think, you know, seeing those developments would be huge and I would like to be, you know, hopefully be a part of that. And we've got some things in the pipeline that I think you know, hopefully in the next few years, we'll be able to then implement and then actually make a difference, you know, from at least the medevac standpoint of view. Nice. Wow. wow. That's awesome. Well, hopefully in a couple of years, we can have you back and you can share some more about what, what kind of things your, your team's working on, um, you know, working on, you know, for your, your field medics. Uh, yeah. um, Hunter, anything else that you wanted to add, buddy? Oh, that was great. That was um, very, very helpful. We see, we're seeing ultrasound roll out more and more to the pre-hospital environment. So um, it'll be exciting to see how that changes over the next few years. And, uh, no, that, that was all very helpful. I appreciate that. That's awesome. Cool. Well, doc, I really appreciate you coming on. That's all I had. I didn't have any other things you kind of, you know, really kind of blew my mind with some of these concepts. And I'm really glad to hear that you like the concepts of bringing ultrasound out into the field. And, um, yeah, pretty, pretty excited to kind of see what, you know, uh, what you're going to be working on in the next couple of years. So, uh, like I said, we'll have to have you back to, to chat more about that. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Um, no, I think just the last thoughts, you know, keeping in mind for these patients that could be, you know, trauma and peri-arrest types of uh, patients that I think looking back, that would be useful for working up or trying to treat before they would then get to the point where there's decompensated shock or they do arrest is being able to recognize getting early access to resuscitate and also recognizing obstructive shock. You know, I know we spoke earlier, you know, this evening about patients that you think back about, not the ones that you necessarily saved, but the ones that you lost and thought you could do something more. And the ones that I always have thought about are the ones that we could not get vascular access soon enough to then resuscitate. And then we're chasing our tails because they lose so much blood. There's no uh, venous blood left to try and cannulate anything, whether that's us doing a central line or medics trying to do peripheral IVs. 
Um, the other thing too is obstructive shock. And I think this is something that we don't always think about, you know, at the forefront with trauma, when someone's hypotensive, the always the right answer is to say, hey, give blood. But if you don't recognize that they could have tension physiology or a tamponade, and you then go to intubate the patient, um, you then just made your situation bad to worse. And being able to then recognize that or take a quick look with an ultrasound to say, hey, do they have obstructive physiology? And be able to correct that before you then could possibly make them code um, is huge. So that would be like my two pearls to take with. And yeah. I'm just saying in general, I'm very excited to see how pre-hospital medicine is expanding. So I think that's a huge last frontier of how we're going to keep on improving patient outcomes is being able to improve and raise the bar for care before patients get to a hospital. Wow, awesome. So look at this, see if they've got tension physiology, do whatever you can to find out if they've got um, pericardial tabinod, which unfortunately most, I shouldn't say most, a lot of programs don't have any uh, um, way to directly intervene um, with mm -hmm. tabinod um, other than fluids and hope for the best. Um, and I do hope that as more programs start to adopt point of care ultrasound, that we start to see more programs adopting or bringing back pericardial synthesis, uh, ultrasound guided pericardial synthesis for those rare occasions. Do you think mm -hmm. that that in those, in those trauma patients, and I'm just going to kind of leave with this one last question, um, in those blunt trauma patients, how often are you seeing tamponade? So I have to say, for all the trauma patients that I've seen so far as a physician, there's not many that will have true tamponade physiology. Now, I can probably count on only like two hands of ones that have had actually true tamponade physiology. There have been a lot who have had pericardial effusions, but there have only been just you know a handful where they've had true hemodynamic instability caused by a significant pericardial effusion. You know, going back to you know my prior point, it was at these uh, patients where if they unfortunately went to go intubate them, they drop their preload because of the meds they push and then put them on positive pressure ventilation, you just completely drop their hemodynamics and they code. Um, right. So it's, it is quite rare. It is, it's, I would even say it's more of a zebra um, that we'll see in the trauma field, but every now and then you will be doing an ultrasound and we do dozens of them a day, you know, in the trauma bays. And all of a sudden you'll just see that one. You're like, who? haven't seen that in a while and it really raises the hair on the back of your neck. Yeah. No, I, I think your last point was so interesting because, you know, I think we're always proving it's hemorrhagic shock until proven otherwise and keeping your differential on an obstructive shock cause is so interesting because mm -hmm. like said, I mean, we can give blood. You have a patient that's not doing well and you go to intubate and then they code. And now you're behind the ball. Cause you're like, well, something else is probably awry. Something else is happening. And then you're already behind and you're coding the patient and you're not getting them back. But I think keeping your differential high on uh, not looking for zebras, but keeping your differential on the obstructive side is, is so helpful. And that's very smart because I think we always do go to blood TXA and, you know, that's what a lot of pre-hospital and ER is. Resuscitation is what we do the best at. But remembering those obstructive shocks and those quick, easy interventions we can do to, you know, make them do so much better is, is awesome. So No, absolutely. Cool. Well, this was great. I sure do appreciate you coming on. Um, if if those who are watching this or listening to this want to find out more about you or want to reach out to you, what's the best place for them to do that? Yeah. So if you guys want to, you can follow me on Instagram. Uh, my handle is TACTRAMAMD. Um, so I just want to thank you guys as well for having me on. I really enjoyed it. So thank you so much.
Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Thank you very much. Yeah, I I enjoyed it uh, tremendously. And uh, we sure hope to have you back uh, at another time. And best of luck uh, with your your new fellowship. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. That's all we have for this episode of the podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. I want to invite you to head over to academy.flightcrit.com to check out the rest of our courses. And remember, education is good, but excellence through collaboration is much better. Stay safe and live well, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Flight Crit Podcast. Bye for now.